You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, we left Moses at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Out in the wilderness in Midian, he married a woman named Zipporah and began his family, had a son named Gershom. And back in Egypt, the people of Israel are crying out because of their slavery. And they are groaning and crying out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They were in horrible conditions and pleading with God to deliver them. It had to get worse before it got better. And so God is raising up a deliverer. Now, we learn elsewhere that this was a period of about 40 years that Moses dwelt out there in the wilderness. So 40 years before he killed the man and fled into Midian. And now 40 years later, we'll see God speaking to him and calling him out of Midian to go back into Egypt to do the thing that you might remember he thought that he was called to do years previous. Now Moses, verse 1, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Moses comes to this mountain called Horeb, He writes of it and calls it the mountain of God. That, of course, is in retrospect. At this moment, when he stumbles upon it with the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, who is also called Ruel, he doesn't know that it's the mountain of God, but he's going to have this wonderful encounter and experience at this place. And so he, you know, is just minding his own business, taking care of his father-in-law's flock. Which, of course, reminds us that faithfulness in the small things will lead to God opening up opportunities in greater things. Keeping the flock was such great training for Moses in the work that he was going to need to do. Those 40 years out in that wilderness would prepare him to be an excellent leader of the people of Israel in that wilderness. None of them had that kind of experience. But Moses would have been so savvy concerning the layout of the land, he was being built into the perfect leader for the people of Israel. And so, verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked... And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There was this fascinating thing. The bush burning, yet not consumed. The presence of the angel of the Lord there. And I believe that this, of course, speaks to us of the cross of Christ. Jesus on the cross, the fire of the wrath of God poured out upon him. Yet he was the only one who could stand. He was not ultimately consumed. He would rise from the grave. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now this reply, here I am, is very similar to what Abraham and Jacob and Samuel and others had said when God began to call them. Here I am. And there's Moses present before the Lord. Then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. First of all, God makes this requirement. He tells Moses, do not come near Take your sandal off your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. This would be a gesture of worship. Take your sandals off your feet. It was holy ground, not by its nature, but because God was present. And this, of course, would speak to Moses and to the nation of Israel about the reality that there were boundaries when it came to approaching God. And of course, they would see this in a great way through the tabernacle and eventually the temple and the priestly system and the sacrifices. There were boundaries and that preparation was required. Take your sandals off your feet. Preparation was required. And of course, this is a wonderful thing for us who are under the new covenant because we realize that Christ has been our preparation And that Christ is our boundary. If we are in Christ, we come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the city, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Up to this point, this is all wonderful news that God is declaring to Moses. First of all, God declares his own activity. He says, I've seen them, I've heard them, I know them, I've come down to them. This is human language used to describe divine intervention. God is promising now, it's time to deliver them. I'm going to move, I'm going to act. And then God tells Moses, I'm going to bring them to a land of milk and honey. Now, this phrase is going to be repeated from this point forward. A land of milk and and honey. And this, of course, gives them a clue as to the beauty of the land that they were going to. Moses was living there out in the desert. It was not a land of milk and honey. Milk, of course, required cattle. And cattle, of course, required Lots of green grass. And so that's the kind of land they were going to. And then he says honey. Honey, of course, requires bees. And bees require, you know, flowers and lots of growth. Crops, fruit, 
trees. And so to go to a land of milk and honey means you're going to a green, lush, fertile land. Uh, very much unlike the place that Moses was in. And he says, I'm going to give them victory over the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so all of these specific people groups that they would have victory over, and the general term for them, he mentioned first, the Canaanites. So wonderful news here that Moses is beginning to receive. Just imagine this, 40 years on his own, 40 years out there in the wilderness, 40 years, his family growing up, establishing his family. And 40 years later, God speaks to him, begins to declare to him, begins to tell him, it's time I'm going to move amongst your family, the people of Israel. But in verse 10, things take a turn. God said, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so God places the responsibility on Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to do this. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Come back to this mountain, Moses. But notice the response of Moses. Moses hears this commission from God. You know, I'm going to use you to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Notice that God didn't say, and you'll bring them into the promised land. God knew what would occur in Moses' life and that Moses would not be the one to bring them into the promised land. But Moses, verse 11, objects. He says, who am I? And he's going to protest quite a bit in the coming verses at this call of God upon his life. And this is a quite different man than we saw back in chapter 2 who appeared quite eager to establish himself as a leader in Israel, amongst the Hebrews. Here he has this humility, and really in one sense, even beyond humility, into this timidity, and perhaps even fear. And so we see that Moses, during those 40 years, has been altered and radically changed. And God promises him, Moses, I'm going to go with you. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, hypothetical question, God, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, he's got another objection, you know, hey, they might challenge me as to your identity. Who do I tell them has sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, at first blush, this looks like quite an ominous and clouded title. And perhaps it is. But on the other hand, 
to think of God with the title of I am, it's just actually beautiful and wonderful because what they would discover is that God would sort of fill in the blank. You know, I am provider. I am deliverer. He would be what they needed him to be. But those who study such things are able to say here that this title for God could actually mean in one sense this, that I am truly he who exists and who will be dynamically present then and there in the situation to which I am sending you. In other words, Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be active with you and upon you. I'm going to help you. I am going to be present. He assures Moses with his nature and with his character. And it's so interesting to see that in Moses' Moses's first two objections, it is the nature and the character of God that is designed to calm his heart. Sometimes just knowing who God is will bring calm into the human heart. Now, of course, Jesus used this title in John chapter 8 when he announced to the religious leaders before Abraham was, I am. He adopted this title for himself, a definite and clear claim towards deity. God also said to Moses, verse 15, Say this to the people of Israel. Say, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he gives Moses this message, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God is giving Moses directions, and he says, Listen, you go to the elders first, they will listen. After you deal with the elders, you go to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Tell him that you want to go three days journey to worship and sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, this is fascinating because God was grading his requests to Pharaoh. It started very simply, just a three-day journey with you know, an understood obligation that they would return. And Pharaoh is going to reject even that simple request. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart is going to be brought out and demonstrated where ultimately God will free the people of Israel completely, not just for a three-day journey, but for their entire lives. But I know, verse 19, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And that's exactly what the plagues would be. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 15 verse 14 that when they came out of a slavery that would last 400 years, they would come out with great possessions. And so perhaps there's a little bit of back pay here, but the people of Israel are going to leave Egypt with great possessions uh, because they're just going to ask for it. By the time the plagues are over with, they'll just ask for the Egyptians to give them things. And the Egyptians will give them silver and gold and clothing. And these elements would, of course, later be used to help in the constructing of the tabernacle. So great prosperity, but obviously prosperity used for a reason. Then Moses, verse 1 of chapter 4, answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So Moses has a little time now to raise his third objection. The first one was, Who am I? The second one was, What is your name? And the third one here is, They're not going to believe that I heard your voice. And the Lord said to him, In dealing with this objection. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from that serpent. So he takes his staff, throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake and Moses runs away. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So the serpent coming from the rod, you know, and the rod turning into a snake. And God, interestingly enough, telling Moses, hey, just go and pick it up and pick it up by the tail. That's the wrong place to grab a snake. But pick it up from, from the tail. Trust me. Trust me. You're doing something that I told you to do that in your natural senses would be a dangerous thing to do. But because I told you to do it, I will take care of the results. And sometimes God will ask us to do an impossible thing that appears to be dangerous in and of ourselves. But the Lord was being faithful and preparing Moses for this great moment. That was the first sign. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, this is some kind of sickness. They called it leprosy. It's different to our modern day leprosy, but it was a major skin condition. It turned his hand white like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. 
If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile. Here's the third sign. And pour it on dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so the third sign would be that Moses would miraculously have the ability to turn water from the Nile River. The Nile River that the Egyptians saw as the source of life and productivity. He would be able to take that water, which they worshipped, and pour it out on the ground. And it would turn into blood. So, in a sense, Moses, by the power of God, is declaring power over the things that the Egyptians themselves would worship. They thought snakes symbolized power and life, and this river gave them life and produce and all of that, and they would worship it. And Moses here, in one sense, judges both. Now, in verse 10, he has an additional objection. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And so he's basically saying, listen, I'm I'm lacking in fluent speech. Now, Stephen said in Acts 7 verse 22 that Moses was powerful in speech. So perhaps he was downplaying his abilities or perhaps he was just fearful and trying to come up with some kind of excuse. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says, listen, I have jurisdiction over the mouth. I have jurisdiction over the, you know, ears and over the nose and over the eyes. I'm, I've made all of these things. So don't you think that I can teach you what to speak and be with your mouth? Just the power and the, the wonderful ability of God to speak through his servants. And God has been speaking through his servants in all time. You know, he loves to take a man or a woman whom he can use and speak through them. And so often we bring our limitations to the Lord. Lord, I I don't think that I can. And the Lord wants to remind us, listen, I made you and I created you. Don't you think I have the power to speak through you or to use your life? The dangerous position is when we come to God and say, God, I believe that you can use me because look at this great ability that I possess. No, it's far better to receive the ability and the strength that God himself can supply. But after God says all of this to Moses, Moses finally comes out with his last objection when he just simply says in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. He just doesn't want to do this task. Moses' heart had changed and his zeal, by the way, was gone. Forty years earlier, there was zeal within his heart, but that had been tempered there in the wilderness. His priorities and perspectives had changed. And he says, Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. 
Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the sign. So God would have none of it. He would not let Moses off the hook. And he says, listen, Aaron's coming out to visit you. He'll be glad to see you. He can speak. So I will speak to you and you will be like God in the sense that since I'm speaking to you, you will then in turn speak to him and he will address the people. So Moses, verse 18, went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses gets permission from Jethro, and some time probably elapses. And then God reiterates and says, It's time. All the men who were seeking your life are dead. Don't fear that. Go back to Egypt. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now as they journeyed, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So as Moses is on the way, he gets these directions from God. One is, make sure you perform all the miracles I told you to perform. The staff turning into a serpent, the hand turning leprous, and the water turned to blood. And then he says, And be sure also to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn, and if Pharaoh doesn't let my firstborn go, then I will kill his firstborn. That's crucial to the story. God warned Pharaoh far in advance. But in the midst of this, God says something very fascinating to Moses when he says, He will not let you go, and I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart. Now, as the story unfolds, what we're going to find is that in the first few instances, Pharaoh himself is going to harden his own heart. In fact, there are seven references to hardening his own heart. After the sixth plague... God will then begin to harden the heart of Pharaoh. And so it appears that God is going to confirm Pharaoh's defiant, willful obstinance by hardening his heart eventually. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. So now we have a fascinating turn of events. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. It appears that what happened here is that 
Moses had neglected the right of circumcision for his sons and was in disobedience as he was returning to Egypt. And, you know, as he's returning to Egypt, he's stepping out to serve the Lord. And that inconsistency in his life had to be dealt with. And Zipporah, who probably detested the rite of circumcision, thought it was gruesome, is angry about it. And it appears maybe at this point that she then returns with her children to stay with her father Jethro until a later date. The Lord said to Aaron, verse 27, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So far, so good. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.